Welcome to episode number 10 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're creating a worldwide global community around workplace safety and industries handling and generating powders and dusty materials. Today's episode, we have an interview with Alan Tilsley, who is an explosion safety consultant in the United Kingdom in the UK. Alan also spent 20 years with the health and safety executive and 15 of those years as their top expert in dust explosions within the United Kingdom. In this interview, we cover two topics. The first is fire and explosion safety in biomass handling industries. And then the second is the regulatory approach used in the UK, um, combining the European ATEX directives and how that's been adopted into the DSER, the Dangerous Substances and Explosive Atmospheres regulations within the United Kingdom. In the interview, we mentioned several different resources as well as different regulation standards and bodies. You can go to the show notes, dustsafetyscience.com slash 10. That's the number 10 to get the, the information from this episode and also links through to those resources mentioned and that different regulatory standards that are involved. And with that, I just want to say thank you as always for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast and I hope you guys enjoy today's interview. Welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. In today's episode, we're interviewing Alan Tilsley. Alan has a, a very comprehensive background in combustible dust safety and explosion safety. He spent 21 years with the United Kingdom, the UK Health and Safety Executive, HSE, with 15 years of that being their topical expert on dust explosion. Finishing with the HSC in 2005, he moved on to consulting for about 12 or 13 years with um, Tilsley Explosion Consulting. That's where he's kind of wrapping up now. And I really look forward to, to having Alan on the show. So I just want to say thank you, Alan, for coming. And I look forward to this interview. You're welcome, Chris. Pleased to share my experience. So those of you that are following the podcast for a couple episodes now, you'll know that our focus for 2019 is understanding combustible dust as a global problem and coming up with global solutions. And as part of that, we're going to be interviewing people from around the world, from the United Kingdom, from Canada, from China, from the United States, to really figure out what's working in combustible dust safety within these regions and within these industries, and what's working on regulations on regulation side, just to get the experience from these experts combined together. So that's really why I have Alan here today. And, and I asked him beforehand, what's the, what's the biggest topic right now that's of concern in the United Kingdom or one of the biggest topics. And he mentioned that biomass, fire and explosion safety in those industries is a really big area. So that's what we're going to talk about first. And then we'll go into kind of the regulatory side, what's happened in the UK over the last number of years and how that's working compared to other regions. So Alan, maybe we'll start with kind of jumping into the biomass side. What are some of the, the hazards that you've seen from fire and explosion safety within the, the biomass sector? And maybe if you could spend a little time just explaining to, to the viewers that aren't familiar, what is biomass, what materials are involved, and what's that look like? Right, yes, happily talk about that because I've had uh, involvement with quite a, a string of different projects that uh, are either storing biomass or importing it. Um, it comes from uh, around the globe and different uh, types of product have different hazards. The biggest quantities are probably uh, shipped around uh, from a deliberate um, cultivation of trees and turning pellets, creating dried pellets, uh, which can be shipped from North America to Europe or around Europe or in from other parts of the globe to the UK. This material is handled in huge ship loads and we know that it has a self-heating problem so that the ship may arrive at the dock and somewhere in the middle of a, a big parcel of, uh, of pellets, tens of thousands of tons, it might already be burning by the time it arrives. That's quite a problem for the shippers. 
And so once it gets off the ships, what normally is the next stage for that uh, material? The, the, the typical unloading system um, is uh, usually a screw conveyor, which you can move and uh, direct around within the hold. Sivatel uh, is the main uh, name I'm familiar with, and they go from there onto belt conveyors usually. The quantities that we're talking about are so big that other conveying methods uh, don't, really, uh, don't really get a look in. So long belt conveyors that run uh, across to some intermediate storage. And we'll talk about the storage arrangements in a moment. These belt conveyors, which uh, inevitably allow dust to escape from fast-moving belts, look a lot like coal mine galleries in, in many ways. They're enclosed to stop the surrounding area being um, covered in dust. Uh, but it means that uh, you've got dust enclosed within a long walkway and a fast-moving belt. Um, and if you ever have an explosion in one of those, you could anticipate the flame would run the whole length of the conveyor. Certainly, yeah. They saw that in, not necessarily with, with wood biomass, but empirical sugar refinery explosion, um, which we covered previously in the podcast, where they enclosed their conveying system, um, conveying sugar underneath their silos, which allowed to get above the, the minimal explosive concentration. And, and yeah, I think it was 100 feet of, of conveyor that when the explosion went off, went through and ripped off the panels the whole way. And then obviously, they had the, the whole facility loss after that. So and closing the conveying system does lead to those kind of hazards. What are the ignition sources that tend to come up in those, especially with unloading of, of wood pellets? Well, the most obvious is the stuff is already burning by the time you start to unload it, uh, and you need to watch for um, uh, that as a problem. But then you've got uh, powerful machinery. So anywhere that you've got um, uh, high-powered motors driving fast-moving rollers, uh, if you get dust trapped in moving parts, uh, first, it will tend to warm up gradually and then dry, so you get a steadily drier accumulation of dust around bearings and on the fins of motors and so on, and then uh, uh, that starts to uh, ignite spontaneously uh, from a slightly elevated temperature and much drier material. And then you have that fire on a on a conveying system, so it also moves in space and time. <laughs> that's right. That's re- really tricky to catch a fast-moving uh, a burning clump of material that perhaps drops into the system uh, because you can't shut these belt conveyors slam shut. Uh, there's too much momentum tied up in the product. Uh, and if you if you tried to just slam shut the motor, you finish up with everything spilt in a, in a huge mess. So they, they wound down slowly. And you probably have, if, if you did that, then the material would spill over and, and get dispersed in the air and you could have, that could cause the explosion to happen. That's right. So you can only wind these things down in sequence. If you've got a, a series of conveyors, as they often have, then it takes quite a few minutes to wind down the system. Well, that's a really good, really good description of that process. I've actually never heard anyone explain it in, in such simple terms, but in such effective terms. Once the, once the conveying system gets off the ships and they move it in, are they traditionally storing it like a large, off, like a large terminal, or is that being transported inland to specific industries and specific facilities right away? The docks usually have some intermediate storage and then it's transshipped into train loads uh, conventionally to onwards to the power stations. So you have uh, two options really for bulk storage, either at the power station or at the, the dock terminal. You can put it in large silos and some of these are the biggest silos that I know anywhere in powder handling industries. What would the diameter be on those? Uh, the biggest I think I've come across are at uh, Drax Power Station in the UK, 
where they're, they're domes rather than cylindrical storage units, but 80,000 tons. Okay, wow. That's really rather big, and it limits what you can do in terms of, uh, of fire protection. The alternative is flat floor storage, where a, an overhead conveyor drops material, um, usually into, on a chute, uh, and uh, a sort of bridge unit spreads the material along the length of a, a, long, a long building. So it's dropped successively, producing a, a pyramid-shaped heap of product. And then if, if that's your preferred method of storage, it's reclaimed, usually with uh, freeze-steered vehicles. People go into that building to load it onto um, road vehicles or other transportation means. So you have a choice between silos, which you don't normally go into, or this flat floor storage where uh, people are working. And are the hazards different between those two kind of systems? I think they're, they're really uh, distinctly different. The silos, um, the biggest scale, are such that our design uh, work for explosion relief panels uh, are really stretching the bounds of credibility. Are the design equations uh, really valid? They're so large that uh, inerting them becomes uh, a seriously uh, impractical option. Uh, the quantities of gas you might need are just huge. And uh, determining whether you've actually got burning inside the silo is, uh, is quite tricky. Sure. The, the alternative to flat floor storage puts people in the um, storage area, which is always a danger. You've got people close to the, working close to the storage. But on the other hand, you can go in with long lances and probe the stock temperature deep inside the pile uh, and uh, get some idea whether there's any, any localized heating. Secondly, you can ensure stock rotation, which matters. Uh, you really don't want to store this material longer than you have to. Uh, but if you're sending people into, uh, into the silo, you can into flat floor storage, you can see that it's clear. You can make sure that there are no hidden corners and you can clear the uh, dust accumulations off the walls fairly straightforwardly. You can't do that in a silo. That makes a lot of sense. I've never thought of it that way where... It's, it's really six of one, half dozen the other, because you can send people in that can do more of, a, more of an observation of the overall system instead of just having probes at, at predefined locations. But then you have people in there. Uh, or you can go and, and have less observation, but then you're taking the people out and, and you could have facility damage or injuries coming from other sources. Yes, yeah, so we'll perhaps come back to this, but the... The, the norm in all the dust handling industries has always been to enclose your process. If you enclose your process, uh, then uh, you don't get dust around the building. So the flat floor storage runs quite contrary to the legal requirements. And you've got to uh, make some elaborate justifications to say that this is actually acceptable. So far, HSE have, have not uh, ever forced people uh, away from flat floor storage. But uh, I do wonder, somebody might might take them on right yeah i think we'll come back to that because we're i think we're we're close on the the pellet side so now we have it inland we have it in storage um normally at power plants that seems to be the biggest consumer that you're mentioning and then from there they i assume they use screw conveyors and other conveying systems to get it into the facility and then what's the actual use the end use of the the product they're uh, burning this material um and uh not sure i've looked terribly closely at the different combustion uh, systems. Most solid combustion systems grind the material down to a dust before you blow it into the combustion chamber. So coal 
that has long been the preferred means of power generation is to run pulverized fuel burners. It's easier to control the flow rates and it's easier to control the um, heat output. Uh, you can modulate the uh, temperature up and down much more readily with a powder feed, which is continuous rather than big, big lumps of coal. So I think that's that's probably how most of the uh, the pellets uh, are handled as a as a powder in the final process. That makes sense. So they have their their grinder or their hammer mill or or whatever their their size reduction method is in the line that goes through, and then they they're burning it in the burners. Do they have any issues with? I, I know in other industries, say grain handling or or even just in in other wood handling industries, they have issues with metallic objects in the line like screws nails other things that could be decomposing again causing self-combustion is there any issues with that kind of tramp material getting through into the system as an ignition source there, there must be um examples of that and i've seen the metal trap uh, at uh, some smaller silos at the drax power station and they were bringing out tramp metal in fairly modest quantities uh, i'm much more concerned about the power stations that run uh, with uh, scrap timber accumulated from domestic waste or uh, uh, pallets or whatever, which we know has metal embedded in it uh, and quite large chunks sometimes. So that's a separate, um, much cruder fuel, but nevertheless used for quite sizable power plants. And uh, sometimes the chunks of metal are so big that they jam the machinery and must get stuck in, uh, uh, in moving parts uh, and a real problem. So pellets are better for that. Scrap timber, certainly, that's a, a real issue. Certainly. Okay, so I think that's a really good overview of, of how the different hazards may arise in, in kind of start to finish from biomass. Do you have, it doesn't need to be a specific example with a name, but do you have kind of an example of an incident that happened and maybe some of the, the processes that were put in place to improve the safety uh, moving forward with that facility? The incidents we've seen have largely been at... Uh, port handling and storage rather than uh, at the power station. So uh, I'm sure some of the power stations have had, had fires, but uh, certainly um, uh, some of the UK's biggest users uh, deliberately wanted two different ports to supply their product because they knew there was a risk that right. uh, one could have a fire and take the, uh, the feed stock off. Um, if you uh, burn out your uh, importation facility, uh, it may well take months to put it back rather than a few days and the power station can't afford to shut. Yeah, that's a really good point because I've seen that. I haven't seen that case in the UK, but certainly in, in some other countries um, where a fire or explosion at the terminal has shut down either the power source, um, the, the, the food source sometimes if it's a grain handling terminal. I think I've seen it in, happen in Brazil potentially some other places around the world where at those shipping terminals, if you have a big large scale issue, it actually shuts down, down the line, a whole lot of potentially important consumer needs or things that are, are needed by the public. So that's, that's kind of an interesting thought process. Economic angle on this as well as the safety angle. So I think it makes sense now. We, that's, that's a really great overview of biomass. I want to talk about the UK regulation system, um, which I don't actually know a lot about other than just some of the, some of the terms and, and things that are used. But if you give us just the, the 40 foot view of what that looks like, and then maybe we could dive into some of the specific aspects. 
Right. If you're looking at explosion safety, um, then there's been a move to try and harmonize design standards for equipment for a very long time, but it made slow progress in the early years. The first standards body um, to try and create uh, equipment standards for electrical equipment go back to the 1940s and 50s, I think, where it was recognized that the mining industry, um, the motors or the lighting or whatever, a flame-proof motor that was suitable for a coal mine in Germany surely should be pretty much the same as a flame-proof motor suitable for a coal mine in the UK or France. But it made very slow progress, and it didn't really accelerate until 1994 when the European Union passed a, uh, a directive called ATEX, which set out rules for um, common standards uh, for a whole range of, um, of goods, the electrical equipment, as a starting point, but they wanted to expand that, and so it expanded into mechanical equipment and explosion protection uh, devices and equipment. That had a very slow burn because although the directive was made in 1994, it wasn't fully mandatory until 19, 2003. So it, it gave industry nine years to come to terms with that. Right. Now, the, the legislation didn't have much detail in it, or what there was was, was confusing. And they dumped on the European standards bodies the job of writing detailed technical standards for a whole range of equipment and all sorts of things that hadn't been standardized before. And I got involved uh, very closely in the, um, the work on mechanical standards, so uh, machinery, which we know creates a um, potential ignition source because any high-powered machinery um, has the energy in the uh, uh, potential to create hot surfaces or um, in fault conditions, big sparks and uh, and so on. So we started with a clean sheet of paper in about 1996 to try and write standards for mechanical equipment that created an explosion risk. Other groups started to try and write um, standards for explosion suppression systems. Uh, they started to write standards for explosion vent panels, explosion isolation systems, all the technical um, means we have to control uh, control the risk in the powder handling industries. But that's been a slow progress. I can imagine with the, just the amount of, of knowledge that's that's needed to, to develop those. But are those standards all under the ATEX umbrella or some under the, the BSI, the British Standard um, Initiatives? Almost all of them were, were, were European and they've moved on. No sooner had we finished the mechanical standards and we're going back to about... Uh, 2005, something like that, um, then the German DIN standardization body came up with a proposal to try and turn them into international standards. I think the, the logic there was they thought that uh, it would be easier to sell into the Chinese market something that had an, an international standard certificate rather than a European standard uh, certificate. And if we um, uh, made them all international standards, then the German industry would be ready and, and um, in the forefront to sell into the Chinese market. I think that's the logic, uh, but it created a whole stream of new work. And this time the meetings weren't all in Europe, but scattered around. Certainly to uh, um, Malaysia, it took me to Tel Aviv. Uh, there were meetings in Australia. There were certainly meetings in North America. Uh, and they start to take up too much time and cost too much money. So I didn't go to the far-flung meetings. <laughs> But uh, most of these are now standards under ISO. They, ha they come out with uh, uh, ISO 80079 series. There are 
two standards of that for mechanical equipment. And I suspect there will be more coming along in due course. Okay, we'll include some links in the show notes um, to to those different standardized bodies and and even some of the standards that we mentioned this episode. Kind of rewinding a bit, I know there's also the the dangerous substance and explosive explosive atmospheres regulations (DSER), which I, I hear a lot about out of the UK. How does that kind of fit in with the other directives that are used? Right, there, there was a recognition recognition within the EU that. Uh, just because your equipment is safe doesn't mean to say that uh, your um, complete process uh, will be safe. You need people to uh, to run it properly. You need people to maintain it properly. You need people to design a whole system, not just assume that if you buy a, a string of bits with the right certificate and put them together, that you'll have a safe plant. So they passed uh, a second ATEX directive, which was a user aimed at the, the end user, HSE, uh, made a decision to turn that into DSEAR regulations, but they're really all European origin, uh, and I don't think they'll change um, anytime soon. Okay, so other regions may have adopted those under their own. You'll find the same wording in in all the other UK, uh, all the other European nations. They are uh, they will be obliged to turn those into their own regulations. They might uh, be uh, assembled differently, but all the same uh, all the same requirements will be there. And the, the, the objective, for, as far as the European Union was concerned, is to make a level playing field. We don't want one country to uh, undercut operational standards and then uh, watch industry migrate to people, uh, to countries that have low standards to save money, Certainly. Uh, but leave the workers in, in some countries at more at risk than, uh, than the better countries. That's the logic. Whether it works, I'm not so sure. That's that's one of the things I'm trying to figure out with the incident database and and how that whole process works together, but that's that's a really great overview and I I think the the audience and the listeners will will appreciate that kind of breakdown. Can you share in in your mind what the differences might be with say the North America system for regulation or for providing engineering guidance or how that works or is that something you've been involved in? Well, I've certainly uh, watched how. Um... A lot of guidelines come out of the insurance industry in North America. So factory mutual uh, have a whole series of, uh, of codes uh, which cover topics which nobody else covers. Uh, they're, uh, and they're, they're shared very widely. They're useful. Um, who else does codes in, in, in North American uh, sources? The NFPA, National uh, NFPA, that's right. I'm not quite sure I understand uh, the legal status of NFPA codes, uh, but they... They certainly have codes for things that nobody else has. Belt conveyors is one example. We've no uh, no European standard for uh, fire protection of belt conveyors, and look to NFPA uh, advice for that. Okay, that's that's a good coverage. So, would a, I guess we're coming towards the end of the interview, and I really appreciate your your time. But at a high level, what do you think the best approach might be moving forward as a as a global community? Is it to identify all these different pieces of equipment and then pick up the standards that are for each one. Like you mentioned, there is no no European approach for the conveyor system, but NFPA does have a conveyor system approach. So is it sort of combining all those together, or do you have any ideas on on where where Alan Tilsley sees this should be going over the next 15, 20 years? I think it's an endless education, I'm afraid, uh, that every uh, new generation of engineers need to appreciate that what looks like fairly harmless sawdust or fairly harmless flour or sugar dust 
actually uh, is incredibly destructive if you get it wrong. Um, and uh, all too often you can walk around uh, plants and realize that nobody here appreciates the danger. They just don't have a vision of it. That must be true of some of the incidents uh, like the imperial sugar, uh, okay. where quantities of dust around were ridiculous. Yes, and, I, and I've seen that a lot with the incident database reporting and certainly imperial sugar. They had, I, I want to say, 60 years recorded documentation of, of facility fires, facility small-scale explosions before the, the catastrophic loss incident that we all know about in, in the 2000s. Uh, so it just shows that the workers may become normalized to this if they, if they see, you know, if you have a fire one week and then a fire in a couple of weeks later and a fire in a couple of weeks later. But each one of those is really ticking the box for a, for a chance for a catastrophic loss. And you can kind of only go to the well so many times on that. That's right. Well, I've got a, uh, a booklet that came with my job in HSC. must have been accumulated somewhere along the line, 1960s, 1970s, which has a title from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Preventing Explosions in Grain Elevators, an Achievable Goal, it says on the cover. Well, I think they're right. It was an achievable goal, but we haven't achieved it. I'll have to get a copy of that. And if I can link to it in the show notes, I definitely will. But that sounds... That sounds like something I'd like to resurface because it's very close to the the goal set that we have with dust safety science. One of the um, one of the lines in that that I have often pressed at people is: having collected the dust off your grain, you don't need to put it back in the process because that's uh, that just means that some uh, somebody else further down the line has got to separate that dust out again. A lot of people do that. Oh, it's too expensive to just dump. Um, right. So maybe, but it's also expensive if you blow your plant up. Well, that's a whole nother it's a whole nother topic, but we definitely this time of year or even I guess last month or this kind of time where it's grain handling season and and they're pulling all their agricultural crops, the number of, of silo fires, number of conveyor fires, um, and certainly number of explosions that we've seen just over the last couple of months is, is much higher than than any other time of year. And and it seems to be indicated by this, you know, cleaning the dust out of your grain if you're following those procedures, if you're getting the the husk out of there. Um, as ignition sources, and and I think we'll see over the next couple of years being able to relate that back to to cleaning your grain in the first place and, and storing it when it's in a better condition. Right, well, I'll hunt out my copy of this booklet somewhere. It's it's uh, fairly buried now, but uh, yes, it has some some useful uh, observations, but they're not new. Sure. Well, and and none of none of it is. It's about getting it back out into the world, but. Um, so with that, I just want to say thank you. I think that was a really exceptional interview, and I, I think the the audience will learn a lot. So I want to say thank you again, and um, I really appreciate having you on the podcast. Glad to uh, glad to be part of that, Chris. And uh, best wishes with uh, future pod- podcasts. You're doing a good job there. Thanks, I appreciate it, Alan. Have a great day. Same to you. That was a great interview with Alan. I know that I learned a ton just by talking with him, and I hope that you found that you learned quite a bit as well. As I mentioned in last week's episode, and then again in this week's episode, our goal for 2019 is to understand combustible dust safety as a worldwide problem and develop worldwide solutions. So we're really looking at interviewing experts from all over the world, uh, from the United States, North America, through to China, Africa, New Zealand, Japan, um, and the United Kingdom, and really understanding the difficulties and the successes that we're having as a, as a global community on this problem. So if you know anyone that would like to be interviewed or be included, or if you'd like to be included yourself, you can go to dustsafetyscience.com slash podcast and fill out the form there. 
If you have any questions to ask these experts, uh, you can also go to dustsafetyscience.com slash ask and ask it there and we'll bring them on to answer those questions. So thank you again for listening. I look forward to talking next week. <laughs>